Welcome back to the Kenny Chester Podcast. I am your host, Kenny Chester, and today we're going to go right into an Adventures in Preaching episode. I had the opportunity to preach last Wednesday night, which would be April the 20th, 2022. I treasure every opportunity I get to speak to young people. It was my heartbeat for so long, and I still love talking to young people. So I had the opportunity to address the young people of our church at Jesus Name Community Church in Walnut, Mississippi. I'm going to talk about where that message came from, how it came to be. Um, go ahead and give an apology to all my listeners out there that was waiting last week. I apologize. I completely dropped the ball. Normally, I would have something prepared um, for a week in which I was not going to be unable to record something in advance. I thought I was going to be able to record last week, but through work, weather, and some travel, I was unable to do that. So we're going to try to start this week off with a podcast and maybe get another one up by the end of the week. If you are tired of your... Kenny Chester podcast sabbatical. I suggest you buckle up. Let's get to work. I don't know. It seems to me that he shouldn't be saying that. Well, what is it that you want him to say? Shut him down. I'm going to go ahead and address the elephant in the room. My voice is not what it normally is. After this weekend of me engaging in some activities that were uh, dusty, to say the least, and preaching yesterday for some of my good friends down in central Mississippi, uh, my voice was started to, uh, or my voice started waning on me, and so, but I need to record this, and so we're going to get it out, and just, just whatever it is, it is, you know, that's, that's, that's what we're going with today, and so thankful for tuning in and listening. Some of you have reached out and wondering if uh, we still had some things planned, and I once again apologize. I had some things planned and did not go according to plan, uh, but man, I had such an incredible week. Uh, we went down on our annual roundup. I've talked about it on the podcast before. I've got some friends that have cattle in central Mississippi, and we went down there and did a lot of hard work, uh, but it was fun. It was the good kind of work. You had uh, a lot of guys that you like to hang out with. Some of my closest friends in the world were down there, uh, those that live around here in North Mississippi, near me or in West Tennessee, North Mississippi. We took those cowboys, connected with a group of cowboys down in central Mississippi, and we had a big uh, roundup where we uh, vaccinated and wormed and branded and performed some other surgical operations uh, that led to some unique delicatessen (laughs) for Friday night's crawfish bowl. Let's just say uh, we had a ball down there. <laughs> and it was a great time uh, for everyone involved. Like again, it was hard work, and uh, but it was fun work. It was that kind of work that you do when you you go to bed at night and you know you've done something uh, that you earn the sleep. And uh, we uh, are recovering from that today. Uh, trying to get back on a roof sometime later this week once this rain gets out of town, which I think will be tomorrow. So I'm going to have this travel hopefully being posted. So without any further ado, let's move on into adventures and preaching. I was afforded the opportunity this past week to talk to some of our young people, and I had something prepared the week before. We had some severe weather that moved through, and we actually had to cancel our services due to inclement weather, and we're glad we did because we actually had some people in our church that were affected by the storms, and uh, it was coming uh, through right as the church uh, would have been starting, Uh, and there were some people on the road already not coming to church, but 
um, doing other things. Uh, you just never know with, we live close to Tornado Alley, or maybe we're even considered in Tornado Alley. You just, you, I, t- I feel bad for pastors because if you cancel service, people will question your spirituality. Uh, and if you go move ahead with services in bad weather and someone were to uh, have a serious accident or God forbid be killed, uh, then you'll have that on your hands as well. And so there's, they're really in, uh, in some lose-lose situations there. I had someone in our church uh, was in an accident in which a tornado put a tree down right in front of them, and they ran into the tree, totaled out a vehicle. It was it was madness, and this has happened over the last few weeks uh, in our area. And so I was scheduled to preach to our young people the week before Easter, and so I was going to the book of Isaiah, and I was going to do uh, some expositional preaching on the suffering servant or the suffering Savior. And I had it all worked out and planned out, and when we canceled service then— I actually turned it into a devotion for my family. We did some worship songs, and some of them we did while taking shelter in the bathroom um, uh, with because it, it got really, really bad here at the house. So long story short, I was postponed to the next week, and so it was after Easter, although that would have been a great scripture. I did not feel led to go in that direction, and so I went with another direction. God got to dealing with me while I was on a roof uh, putting down some product earlier in that week and got to dealing with me about the book of Judges and the implications there. And so I want to talk to you about the message and the message title and the thoughts that were going through my mind as I read this, as the Lord began to speak uh, to me. And I also want to address the Spirit's role in expositional preaching. Now you would say, well, the Spirit has already communicated to that author what uh, the Spirit is trying to say to the churches, and I do agree with that. Um, But I also know that the Word of God is quick and powerful. That word "quick" means alive. It is is a quickening agent. It, it's alive. It, it it brings out things in real time. You can read a scripture that will speak to you on a day that you have read that scripture before, and it didn't impact you like that. Why? Because it's alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder. You get all these these things. And so I was I was reading there, and the Lord was just man speaking there. And then he began to speak with me, and so I want to give you the title that I used and the overall uh, over uh, the overview of the message, and then I'll I'll talk to you about how I prepared it, and then how it went in delivery. And so the title that I used um, was I think I, I titled it "Dancing in a Minefield," and I'm not I'm not really uh, stuck on that title. Um, I did more preparation of reading and and praying and meditating on the scripture. I didn't really get um, you know a title that would really grab their attention. I guess maybe that was attention grabbing, but I don't know. I just wasn't in love with it. And so after today's podcast, if somebody wants to text me, DM me, or leave me a voice message through my anchor site uh, and say, you know what, you should have called it this, I'd be like, okay, man, that'd be great, and I might do that later uh, if I if I preach on these themes again. Uh, I struggle sometimes with the expositional. Titles, you know, you just you normally would just say, well, Judges chapter one, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna read that, and uh, and I'm sure that's good categorization. But I'm preaching to young people, and I want it to be something that would grab them. And so I spent more time studying and praying and meditating, which is good. Um, but since I had that that short turnaround from that canceled service, and then uh, I really did not get a great title, in my opinion. And so 
The reason I went that direction is because as I read the book of Judges, I know that the Lord was speaking to me and dealing with me about this portion of Scripture. And so you say, well, how did you uh, go through the entire book of Judges uh, while you're preaching? Now you say, well, Chester, you must have preached very long. And that might <laughs> that might uh, uh, actually uh, be an accurate description. I, I tried not to be very long. I think we were done as the church, uh, the main church service, the adult Bible study was being concluded downstairs, and so I don't think I went over my time. So I think when you're dealing with a book like this and you're trying to expose the message that the book has, that's what expository preaching is, exposing what the Bible is saying, what it, what does these scriptures mean? So I read the book, and I got what I thought was the themes, and I started underlining and highlighting the pertinent scriptures. And so one thing that I did not think of, uh, I had a little, uh, the slim post-it notes posted with my little thoughts wrote on them. Uh, I, the Bible that I was using uh, Wednesday night, it was not a wide margin Bible. So I was had little post-it notes that you would see, you know, those preachers that have the colored post-it notes. I had those and I had arrows pointing to them. Well, after service, I, I actually took them all out and I threw them away. And I, if I'd have thought about the the podcast, I would have saved them, but I kind of felt like one of my grandfathers, my one, uh, Reverend T.R. Foster, who's no longer with us, uh, he used to write his messages and throw them away immediately after he got done preaching them, or he would have the temptation of not studying <laughs> in, the, in the future, and I love that about him. Um, I feel, uh, and, that, and if that's your jam, that's your jam. I respected him for that. Uh, I do feel sometimes I get a message for the church, generally speaking, and I'll preach it into multiple congregations. This, I I actually felt like it was a specific word to our young people. Now, I'm sure that I will um, do some more preaching out of the book of Judges in which I can use some of these same thoughts because, again, the word is the word. It's what the Scripture was saying. But this message was very specific, I think, for our young people in this season. And I think that's why the Lord uh, dealt with me like He did in the time frame that He did. And so I didn't have a, a, a ton of time to write this big, long outline, which I don't normally do anyway. I usually have a small, brief outline. And so how do you spend your time studying? And everybody's got a different method and a different um, idea and a different approach. And so I'm not knocking anybody's. I'm just, the Adventures in Preaching uh, started off with me trying to transition from one style to another style. And so my preparation has changed a lot. Um over the last few years, and so what I have found myself doing more than I uh, than than writing these things out is more meditative thinking and contemplating on the scriptures. I'll read, and then I'll just I'll just meditate on it, and I'll pray, and then I'll start uh, writing down. And consulting, you know, biblical study tools uh, to make sure that that I'm I'm, I'm being uh, I'm just not my human thinking. Um, and again, I, I, you have to be careful with commentaries; they're not inspired words of God, so you can't just go to that and say, "Well, this is what God says." You know, you 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 lay it all out there, and you use those tools. You can use a tool to uh, really destroy something, damage something, or you can use that tool to build up something. So use the tools to glorify God and to edify the body, and this is what we're trying to do. So the overview of Judges, as I understand it, is that it is a book that it comes off right off the hills of Joshua, and Joshua was about the campaign after they had, had received the law. They had left Egypt, they had received the law, and Moses basically was leaving the scene. Joshua was rising to prominence, and they start this military campaign through the book of Joshua, and it chronicles the history of Israel um, going forth into the promised land. It's a great book. There's much to preach out of that, but that's not what I was led to preach. So we're going to the book of Judges. So what happens in the book of Judges? Well, it's kind of the same thing that's happening at the end of 
Deuteronomy with the death of Moses and the passing of the torch to Joshua, so to speak. So at the end of Joshua, we're having Joshua passing the torch, and who does he pass it to? Well, that is a great question. We know that the book of Judges institutes this new type of ruling apparatus that God has in store for his people. Now, the mission continues to be the same. They're still driving out the enemies that are living in the promised land, and they do this by this select people called judges. Now, we think of a very Western, you know, judicial idea when it comes to judges, those that are judging cases, those that are judging the law, that are judging um, complaints brought against one another and, and sorting things out. These judges are not fulfilling that obligation to that people. Actually, these judges are more like tribal chieftains. They are military strategists. They they were they were raised up and and used for liberation and military campaigns and advancing the the kingdom of God, literally the kingdom of Israel in those early days. And so that's what these judges are there for. And so with the book of Judges, we find the death of Joshua. And then where that leaves them, it's like, okay, now how where how do we continue the mission? And one thing that I love about Deuteronomy to Joshua to Judges is it shows that God's plan for his people is bigger than any one man. That that it's because Moses dies, the dream doesn't die. Because Joshua dies, the goal or the mission doesn't die. And 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 some of us sometimes we get in this mind, it's like, man, what is going to happen when brother so and so or you know elder so and so or sister so and so and all these people that we rightfully you know look to for examples. Moses was a good man. Uh, Joshua was a great man. You know he was a great a leader for Israel. But we're not we're not denigrating them, but we are saying. Saying that the the hero of the Bible is God, and you'll find this out in the Book of Judges. Even though there are people that have done great exploits, it's time and time again. It's it's the God of those people that we like to put on those pedestals. That's really the main character. Um, in these stories. And so we're reading in the book of Judges, and we have Joshua leaving off the scene here, and the mission remains the same. What is the mission? Well, we got to drive out the enemy from the land. And so this is what the book of Judges is concerned with early on. It's like, okay, the conquest has started, but it's not complete. And the conquest goes beyond just one person's military prowess. And it's Joshua was a great leader, but now it's time for another generation to step up and do what God has called them to do in furthering the mission of God. So now we already have a great start or a foundation to address some young people who are maybe feeling that urge or that calling to do something in their generation. The stage is set in the Bible for more land to be taken, for more promises to be inherited. And so we go into the book of Judges knowing that they've experienced a leadership change or the leader that had led them to this point is no longer with them, and God is going to do something new in a new generation, and that is chiefly done among these judges. And so as we start off reading, we'll we'll find it right in the, all out the gate. It's after the death of Joshua, the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, who should go up against the Canaanites first in order to wage war against them. And so they're inquiring of the Lord about the battle plan, and God gives them the battle plan. The battle plan is, I want Judah. And if you've been to a Pentecostal church or if you've ever been uh, some um, spirit-led, spirit-filled congregation, you'll learn very quickly that Judah— is representative of praise. They were the praisers of the tribes of Israel. They were the musicians, and they would send Judah out first to battle. Uh, and there's so many 
parallels that you can draw into, you know, you should be praising, you know, before the battle starts, you should be praising uh, for the victory, all of these things, you can say this, but in this particular instance, God's will was them to send the praisers out first, send Judah out first, but Judah does something that, you know, from my reading and, and what I understand here is that Judah does something that um, that God doesn't ask them to do, and that is to get someone to go with them. And so immediately when I was um, getting into the message, I was like, this seemingly is a good thing, but God didn't say Judah and this tribe go. He just said Judah go. So Judah actually links up with Simeon, and they said, well, y'all go with us. So one of the first points that I make is it's not always wise to bring someone with you when God has called you to do something and you say, well, there's strength in numbers, Chester. That is correct. There is strength in numbers, but maybe it wasn't God's will for them to go with you. Maybe there are some things you do by yourself or some things you do alone, and God can have his own reasons for that that he does not he does not have to share with us. He's not required to bring us in on his decision process. He just said, send Judah. So Judah goes with another tribe and this could be, you know, very applicable to young people because there's a desire never to do anything alone when you're that age. You want to, you know, have an experienced partner, you know, you want somebody to go, you know, what, take the picture, you know, or, 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 or be there for moral support, whatever it is, you know, the girls that, you know, go to bathrooms, you know, in teams these days, or I should say these days, it's been like this for decades and maybe even centuries. And so I started there, uh, in the first chapter and it's like, you know, that's not what God asked them to do. And this is, you say, well, I don't know if, you know, that, that might not have been, uh, such a bad idea, you know, to take someone with you. But the fact is that the scripture reveals that Judah did not do what, God called them. They did a little bit of it, but this is what it says in verse 19. The Lord was with Judah, and they took the hill country, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the coastal plain, for they had iron chariots. And so as I'm preaching through the first chapter here, I'll, I'll point out something very interesting. It's this statement that the Lord was with them, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the coastal plain. And this is such a a a weird you know, revelation that you could be with, God can be with you and you still not do what God has called you to do. This seems to go against the, the things that we've heard and, and had preached to us and read is, you know, if God is with you, then who can be against you? Well, apparently in this story, people with iron chariots can be against you. And I'm not saying the Bible contradicts itself. I am saying that right here, we, we have to understand that not doing it God's way can cause problems down the road. Now, if you continue to read, it wasn't just Judah, but it talks about Benjamin afterward, that Benjamin wasn't able to drive out the Jebusites living in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites lived with the tribe of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. That's verse uh, 21 right there. It says in 22 that the descendants of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the descendants of Joseph sent spies into Bethel, the former uh, name of the city of Luz. The spies come and, and it went all that, and they said they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his extended family go. And then the man went to the land of the Hittites. He built the city of Luz, and that's the name of his... Uh, to its day. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. And if you keep reading, you'll find every tribe is advancing, 
but not completing the task. And so the crux of the message early on was this is a very dangerous and precarious situation for this generation that was seeing victory, that the Lord was with them. The Lord has commanded them to do something, but they failed to completely follow God's plan, God's will for them, and that was to drive out completely the inhabitants of Canaan. And so this is getting worse and worse and worse. And it gets down to, and I think it was Dan, that not only did Dan not drive out the inhabitants of the country, but they actually were pushed back and they had to live in the boundaries that the enemy dictated for them to have. They were actually being oppressed early on. And so when we get to chapter two, God shows up and he speaks to them through an angel. And this is not a very good, this ain't like a halftime pep talk. God is livid with the progress or the lack thereof of the children of Israel. This is what he says in verse one of chapter two, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you to a land that I promised your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, but you must not make a pact with the inhabitants of the land. You must tear down their altars and you have not obeyed me. What is this thing that you have done now? So now I say, I will not drive them out before thee. I will be, or they will be thorns in your sides and all their gods will be a snare to you. Now, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words, all the children of Israel, the people raised their voices and they wept aloud and they named that place Bochum and sacrificed to the Lord there. And so we have the Lord now shows up uh, through an, uh, a ministering angel, and that angel gives the message like, God's not pleased with this um, state of living that you have subjected yourself to. What is that? You did not drive out the inhabitants. You did not tear down their altars, and now their gods are going to be a temptation f- to you for all time. Now, God, he reestablishes, or not, I shouldn't say reestablishes, but he reaffirms the covenant. He goes, I made a covenant with you. I'm not breaking my vow, but I'm going to tell you what, I'm not going to fight your battles anymore, and I'm not going to uh, drive the enemy out of the land. You should have done that. I was with you. Why did what, what caused you to not wholly follow the Lord? And so this sets up, this is the frame and the context of the entire message here, because he says, I'm going to leave these temptations, these snares, these thorns. I'm going to leave them in the land of Canaan. And this is a a horrible, horrible pronouncement as evidenced by the reaction of the Israelites. They, they They lifted their voices and they wept loudly because they know what a terrible... Uh, situation this is. They're going to be left now living in their promised land, the land that they have fought and bled for, literally fought and bled for, and now it's a minefield. And that's where the the thought of that came from for the title. Again, not exactly pleased with the title, but it is what it is. The idea was that now they're having to live their life, and at any moment they could step on something that will blow up in their face and cause uh, harm to them and the next generation. It's the thorn that's always there. It's the it's that temptation that's always there. And they didn't have to live like that. And so I, as I'm preaching, I'm going through now. And I'm talking about the judges as God's raising up these uh, these tribal chieftains, and really they're just military strategists, and they're 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 there to help overthrow the yoke of bondage for these oppressors that come in uh, to the children of Israel. And so what we see now is, and this has been always referred to as the cycle of sin or the cycle of Israel there as it is the book of Judges. It's this cycle that goes uh, forward in every generation. And basically it amounts to something like this. I've seen people break it down into four and six, and there's there's obviously gradients 
of the seasons and how they bleed into one another. But I'll give you the basic, the most basic cycle um, or the stages of this cycle for the history of the children of Israel as it laid out in the book of Judges. It is this. They are living at peace. They backslide. God is angry. He sends an oppressor. They are now oppressed. They cry out to God. God hears their cry, raises up a judge, and delivers them, and the time of peace sets in. And that's the cycle. It's basically they are doing good. They backslide. They are captured. They are freed because they prayed to God, and God sends a deliverer, and then there's peace. And then when the judge dies, they backslide, and that's the cycle. And so I introduced this cycle to them, and I said, this is the type of living that you are going to be engaged in when you fail to drive out the enemy completely from your heart, when you leave there a beachhead, when you leave there an altar that's been not broken down, when you don't tear down those asphalt poles or however you pronounce that word. When you leave them there, they're going to be a thorn and a constant temptation. And so God would raise up these judges. And if you look at now the cycle as it goes through and it starts telling you about these judges starting in chapter 3, you'll realize that they're pretty good judges. But as the further backsliding of Israel takes its toll on the nation, you'll understand that not just does the people's conditions worsen, but the quality of their leaders also are less and less admirable. And and and, and it bears that out if you read all the stories, and I didn't have time, obviously, to read all the stories. I'm not preaching the whole book of Judges. I'm going through the themes and, and selecting these verses that bear out these points. Um, the scripture is great at, at bringing a, a great character to us, and just in a few short verses, telling us about um, how they their claim to fame, something like a Shamgar and, uh, and Deborah. And so without getting into all of those, I wanted to just make the point that it's not just the cycle of sin. This is something that uh, kind of jumped out at me, um, and I'm probably going to use this later on at a youth camp, is it's not just the cycle of sin, uh, sin that we think of as like a flat circle, and we look at it and say, all right, we're back to square one. If you read it and you get your eyes open, you'll see that the book of Judges is actually a downward spiral of sin. And so you have this circling mechanism where you are back to, quote-unquote, uh, the starting point, which is peace or rebellion, however, whichever one is your starting point there, but it, it, it descends lower and lower uh, as you go. So it's not, so don't just think of it as a circle. Think of it as a spiral going down, descending down to the depths. And that is the downward spiral of the history of Israel as read in the book of Judges. And so what I really wanted to get to by the end was the story of Samson. And Samson is by and large the most famous character that comes out of the book of Judges. Um, he's a Sunday school classic as far as his story. He's a man of great strength. We know about the Nazarite vow. And um, I talk about that a little bit, but I use Samson kind of as a microchasm of the entire portion of scripture that he comes from. He is basically a small part that represents the whole. It's this constant compromising of Samson's life that leads him to destruction. And I know what you're going to say because Samson did some great miraculous feats, but he was born to be a deliverer and he did not deliver the children of Israel from the Philistinian oppression that he was born into. Samson is a case study in what it looks like to have compromise after compromise after compromise. And so I talked about the vow. I talked about being peculiarly consecrated to God. And 
I minister at an apostolic church, and it's very known, if you know anything about apostolic Pentecostalism, is that there is a high standard of Christian living. You can call it holiness, but I think that only scratches the surface. Holiness concerns all manner of conversation, which basically means behavior. It goes beyond what you dress like, but I do think God is concerned of how we present ourselves in this world, and I think holiness is a good banner to start. You can start there, but it doesn't end in presentation or appearance. It goes farther into the depths of being holy in all manner of our behaviors. But what I'm what I'm getting at is that Samson had a an additional level of consecration that no one else in his generation had. And I asked the young people, I was like, "Have you ever considered this? Have you ever thought, you know, why am I um, doing this? Why do I not wear this? Or why do I not smoke this? Or drink this? Or say this? Or go there? Or date this kind of person? You know, what is why why am I required to do more?" And I said, "This is Samson." His life. He was required to do more because he had a greater purpose than anybody in his generation. And when there's a greater levels of consecration, you read out through history, when you get someone that's completely sold out to God, when they say, you know what, I'm going to give these things up, whether it be through fasting, whether it be through some type of spiritual discipline, you get a guy that's wholly given over to the work of God, and they're, they're, they're being primed in position to do something great for God. This was Samson's life. He was consecrated at a level that was actually prophetic in what he was going to do when uh, his birth was prophesied to his parents. And so you get this man who he's not supposed to touch uh, anything that's unclean. He's not supposed to drink any strong drink, and he's not has, he's not supposed to have a razor touch the, his hair. Now, this is a vow that other men in the Bible had um, taken before, but it usually was for a period of time. This was a vow that he was supposed to be for his entire life. And there's a handful of other Bible characters, and we won't get into that, that actually had that vow for, it was a lifetime, a lifelong vow. And these were incredibly used men of God in the Bible. And so Samson is supposed to be walking that path, but he's in the downward spiral of the sin cycle that is the history of uh, Israel. And so he's there compromising every one of his beliefs and the nation and descends with him into more and more immorality. And again, it's a microchasm. It's a, it's a small part that represents the whole. And so I'm, I'm going to our young people and I'm saying, do not use, look at Samson as a warning to not live your life that way. You can say, well, we admire Samson for his strength and we admire the fact that he, in his death, he killed more than in his life. But let me ask you this, what would have happened if he would have lived longer? What if he could have killed more, you know, the remainder of his life? What if, what if Samson would have not compromised and he would have actually overthrown the yoke of the Philistines uh, oppressive um, and he could have, you know, led some great spiritual revival for his countrymen. And so I, I have this theory and I'm not sure where everyone else is out there. Maybe if you disagree with me, I would love to hear your take on it. But I have this theory that it wasn't the hair alone that caused him to lose his strength. We get this idea because, I mean, it's, it's a simple story to, to tell. And I understand why uh, somebody would think this because it was the last thing that happened before his strength was gone. But I have this theory that it was actually the last thing that he compromised. And if he would have cut his hair first, that he would have still had the Lord using him because it was just the last thing in a long list of compromises that he was making. And 
because it doesn't set up the whole cutting the hair as the first and foremost paramount part of his consecration. It was other things. But if you read his life, he went ahead and let down those other things before. So I think it was an accumulative effect. I think you can call it the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, he would all he had already touched dead things. He had already been in the valley of the vine where they're you know all, uh, where they got vineyards and making wine and stuff. He's got all these things that are happening that he's not supposed to be happening. And and as he compromised those things, he would make these comments like. I'm going to go out and do as I've always done. The Lord's going to be with me. And he would shake himself. The Lord would show up. It was that last time, though. It was that last compromise that he made. And and I, and I told the young people, I said, I think this is the saddest scripture in the Bible, or one of the saddest scriptures of the Bible, where it said that Samson, when he cut his hair, when he had told Delilah uh, his, his secret of his power, and she shorn his head, she saved his head. She said, Samson, Samson, the Philistines be upon you. And he made this comment. I think it's the most tragic and saddest one in, in the Old Testament, at least. And it says that he wist not that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And I say, what a what a terrible condition to be in when you think that God is going to show up like he's always shown up for you. And you go out to fight for victory and you have no idea that the Lord is no longer with you that his spirit has left you, that you are now by yourself. You're just a man, Samson. You are not supernaturally gifted and empowered by God anymore because the spirit is left and you didn't even realize it. And, and it was at this point that I, that I, that I, made a pronouncement. I was like, we got to be very careful because all those other times, Samson was compromising on what he believed and what he had consecrated his lifestyle and said, I'm going to do this. And he was letting those down. But every time that God would move on him, he probably considered that as validation. And so I made the comment. I said, we have to be very careful to not mistake God's mercy for validation of lifestyle. We come into the church and we can still feel his presence and we still feel that pull and that tug and God's reaching for us. That's God's mercy. That's not God's validation. And I can say personally, I've been living a life like that where I would go and I, I knew that I was doing things I shouldn't be doing, but you know, I'd go and I'd still feel God's presence and, and I'd still feel like that tug and that pull. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not going too far. God still loves me. And it's, we, we, we get, we get our minds wrapped in this thought. It's like, well, if I can still feel that, then I'm not too far gone. And the fact is, it's God's mercy. He's, he's, he's withholding judgment. He's withholding that. He's giving us a time and space for repentance. There's, there's a time, and it's, it's an Old Testament principle that goes now that you know, there's a time where God is, your, your cup of wrath is not full yet. The sin has not reached that, that, that critical mass, so to speak. And so God is merciful, and he's extending mercy and in mercy and mercy. And then one day, we're just going to be in a position where we with not that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from us. This is where I closed the message that night. I will say that I believe the Lord spoke to some young people. And I mean, when I say that, I'm not even talking about through me. I'm talking about as I stumbled along and, and I try to get the, you know, the scriptures right. Um, I know that the Holy Ghost is moving on young people's lives. There were some that were hardened, and that's just that goes with the territory. But there were some that before I was able to open up the altar that already had their eyes flooded with tears. And I could tell that God was ministering. And so we opened up the altars. And we just turned the whole youth sanctuary into a prayer room, and God moved, and I believe God intervened. And this is what's important when you're when you're preaching that 
you can be sensitive to the Holy Ghost, and as you're moving from one place to the one point to the other, you might have a you might have more content than you have time to cover, and that's okay. You have to be sensitive to the moving of the of the Spirit of God to know when to stop that and say this, or don't say that, and don't say, and, and, but say this instead. And I felt, as far as the delivery, I felt like I I, I stumbled out the gate a little bit because um, it was a very difficult subject to broach, and but I, by the end of it, I felt my help come and the Lord really ministered to our young people in a great way. I'm always thankful for the opportunity. Um, so that was the adventures of preaching as it goes to the um, my exercise to the book of Judges. Um, again, thank you for listening to the Kenny Chester podcast. I'm so sorry that it's been so long that I've um, been able to post and get these uploaded. Uh, we'll try to have some more by the end of the week. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Kenny Chester podcast. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. 